On the evening of December 6th, each year in Montreal, at the Belvedere Condiaronc, at the summit of Mont-Royal, 14 beams of light are shot up to the sky. 14 names are read out from the podium inside of the chalet there. This is to commemorate the lives and tragic deaths of the 14 victims of the École Polytechnique massacre. While this massacre did create change in gun legislation, the underlying issues that motivated the attack continue to resonate to this day. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. As is the case with most of the disasters I cover, the École Polytechnique massacre is human-made. Where it differs from other disasters is that this is also a case covered by multiple true crime podcasts and outlets. Each has their own way of dealing with this difficult subject matter. Out of deference to the women murdered, and to avoid giving him any more notoriety than he already has, I will not be using the name of the shooter in this episode. He will be referred to only as M.L. M.L. is born in 1964. His mother, Monique, is alone in the operating room. His father was working in the Caribbean, all the while carrying on yet another affair. You see, a week earlier, another Monique had given birth in the same hospital, with the same unique last name. Turns out, M.L.'s father already had a mistress in Montreal. Monique had an interesting life. She had trained to be a nun, being a devout Catholic. While in her training, she learned from the nuns that wives were to placate their husbands. This would lead to disastrous consequences. Having given up her religious career, Monique turned to nursing. It's there one evening when a colleague convinces her to go to dinner with a couple of men that she meets the smooth-talking, well-dressed, polylingual Rashid. The two begin seeing each other. Rashid pressured Monique to have sex for months. She still clings to her religious teachings that tell her sex should be between married couples only. But when he threatens to leave her, she capitulates. But this is the 1960s in Quebec, still a deeply Catholic society. Birth control is not a thing. Without this, Monique gets pregnant. Between 1961 to 1963, she gets pregnant three times. Each time, she undergoes an illegal abortion. Rashid is not happy with these operations, not because of any religious reasons. You see, Rashid is a non-practicing Muslim. He's unhappy because he has to fork out $100 for each one. When Rashid asks Monique to marry him, she reluctantly agrees because she doesn't want to be a spinster. In her heart, she later claims, she knew it was a bad idea. Rashid was controlling and a huge misogynist. He believed women shouldn't work, so Monique left her job at the hospital. This freed her up to be Rashid's secretary. He would often have her type up his messages. If she made a mistake... He would yell at her, rip up the paper, and force her to do it again. There are times he also hit her head against the typewriter. The physical abuse increases over the years of their marriage. Shortly after M.L.'s birth, Monique headed to Puerto Rico to be with her husband, in the mistaken belief that being closer together will strengthen their marriage. It doesn't. Rashid, as it turns out, absolutely hates children. He forces Monique to ignore their sobbing child. So after a few weeks, when upset, M.L. learns to just look sullen instead. One night, when M.L. was only 18 months old, Rashid convinces Monique to go to a movie with him. They leave M.L. alone in the house in his crib. When they return, M.L. is screaming in the middle of the floor. He'd escaped his crib, taking down a lamp in the process. Rashid is more upset about the broken lamp. 
As ML grew older, the abuse turned to him as well. There were frequent spankings for things as simple as singing before Rashid was up, eating before Rashid had a chance. ML was sometimes hit so hard, blood would come out of his nose or his ears. Exacerbating this, Rashid refused to let his wife comfort their child after these incidents, claiming that in doing so, it would spoil him. In fact, during their divorce proceedings in 1976, M.L. informs the judge that he believed it was illegal for his mother to comfort him. A sister, Nadia, joins the family in 1967. M.L. was jealous of her from the get-go. When Nadia was only a few weeks old, Monique found M.L. rocking her cradle so violently she believed he was trying to dump his baby sister on the floor. Unsurprisingly, M.L. and Nadia would not have a happy relationship throughout their lives. During the divorce, Rashid is granted supervised visits with the children. As Monique was driving them to one of these visits, she told M.L. that they were going to see his father. In response, he grabbed the steering wheel and yanked it violently to the right, narrowly avoiding a collision. He would rather crash the car than spend another moment with his father. And after this, he never saw Rashid again. As a single mother, Monique knew she had to get a better job for her children. She worked as a nurse during the day, and for a few nights a week, she took classes to improve her credentials. It was too difficult to keep the children with her at that time, so they were passed on to different people during the work week, only seeing their mother during the weekends. This caused M.L. to feel as though his mother abandoned him. He acted out in various ways, antagonizing Nadia, throwing a propane tank at a fire pit, killing Monique's beloved cat. But everyone thought that he was just profoundly hurting, not dangerous. By the time M.L. is 12, Monique has received her qualifications and is now director of nursing at the hospital. Because she works long hours, she tells M.L. that he must look after his sister. He does so very begrudgingly. Nadia deals with her abandonment issues by turning to delinquency and drugs. During most of the early 80s, it was actually Nadia who was the problem, not M.L. M.L. was far more likely to be found tinkering with computers in their basement, hiding from the terrible acne that plagued him all his life. Nadia would encourage her friends to make fun of her brother, telling them to call him stupid and ugly. One afternoon, Nadia catches M.L. kissing a girl in their backyard. She jeers at them through the window, and M.L. pushes the girl away. It's unclear if he ever kisses another girl. He becomes more reclusive after high school. He finds he enjoys war games, reading about violence, and watching violent movies. He wasn't much of a drinker and didn't enjoy socializing much. The one time a friend described him as being excited was during a paintball game. M.L. lit up and talked about strategy and the best way to hit people. I want to pause here for a moment. It is undeniable that M.L. had a terrible childhood. He was plagued with feelings of inadequacy from an early age. His whole family was described as cold and severe. He probably had a few head injuries sustained from his father. All of this, and with the acne, he didn't have much of a positive experience in school. But he was getting help during his adolescence. Monique knew that she was still dealing with the trauma of her husband, so she signed herself and her children up for counseling. M.L. had a professional to speak with. The unfortunate reality is there are hundreds of children who also have terrible childhoods. Children who witness intimate partner violence 
or children who are subject to abuse are far more likely to develop serious mental health issues. And with them, the pattern of domestic violence may continue. But not every child that witnesses domestic violence goes on to massacre other people. Yes, ML was a sick man. But that doesn't erase the fact that he committed these horrific crimes on innocent people. ML establishes a pattern of being unable to complete anything. After high school, he jumps around, first to an army recruitment post where he is rejected. ML claims that they told him he was too antisocial, but the army continues to say that they actually don't give any reasoning as to why they reject a candidate. He then goes on to the Cégep Saint-Laurent, studying in the pure sciences. He ends up failing two classes in his first semester, but by the second semester, he has pulled his grades up considerably. Beginning in 1982, he also goes to work at his mother's hospital. He works as a server and a dishwasher. His colleagues describe him as nervous and difficult to work with. Often, he wouldn't complete a task, and he liked to talk back to his superiors. Making an effort to get to know the women at his job, he would sit with them at breaks, but not speak to them. They, in turn, laughed at him and were often cruel to his face. He did make one friend who says that even when they were alone, M.L. would stir his food constantly and not make any effort to look up at her. On one occasion, he tells her, quote, I know so many girls, but they won't go out with me. By 1983, he transfers out of pure sciences and into electronics technology, where he felt he would be more likely to get a job after graduation. He was a decent student, and he was excellent with computers. His classmates weren't so fond of him. By January of 1986, with only a handful more courses to go, M.L. drops out of this cégep. At this point, he applies to the École Polytechnique, but he's told that unless he gets the requisite chemistry courses, he cannot be accepted. In September of 1987, following months of clumsy behavior and poor attitude, M.L. is fired from his position at the hospital. They give him a generous severance of $2,400. But to hear him tell the story, he was fired by a woman for one mistake in order to replace him with another woman. One witness at the time also overheard him threaten to go on a violent rampage that would kill others and end in his own death. M.L. moves on to another cégep, living off employment insurance. He uses some of his severance money to buy a computer. And in March of 1988, he moves to yet another program, this one at a private post-secondary institution called Control Data, where he studies computer programming. His grades at Control Data place him within the top 15% of the class. That summer, he moves into an apartment with his friend Eric Cosette. Monique helps him paint his walls turquoise, and he covers them in violent posters. ML then enrolls in yet another cégep, this time to get his requisite chemistry courses. The chemistry courses are held in the evenings, two nights a week. There, he gets partnered with a woman named Sylvie. M.L. is initially rude to her, calling her Fräulein and forcing her to redo experiments and berating her for any small mistake. This, despite the fact that he was making far more mistakes than she. Each time he does this, he utters his trademark phrase, Ah, shit. After a couple weeks of the constant torment, Sylvie tells him that unless he becomes nicer, he'd better find another lab partner. Reluctantly, he agrees. A strange friendship emerges, 
bolstered when Sylvie asks ML to help her with her computer science class. Of course, ML takes this opportunity to show off how much he knows about computers and basically does the homework for her so she doesn't learn much. ML also takes the opportunity in his chemistry course to show his fellow classmates newspaper clippings he's collected about the female police officers in Montreal. To him, women cannot be physically as fit as a man and therefore have no reason being a police officer. He tells the lab assistant about the six female officers on the force. When the assistant asks why there are only six women, because surely there are more, ML produces all of his newspaper clippings that show their names. With only a couple of months to go at control data, ML stopped attending classes, but he pretends to Sylvie that he's still going. Only now he's withdrawn in the lab. After class ends, Sylvie tells him that she's been accepted to Université de Québec at Trois-Rivières in their engineering program for the fall. ML lies and says he's going to École Polytechnique. Eric sees his friend at the apartment, noticing a couple of times when he becomes violent. At one point, he punched a hole in the wall after he burnt some meat, but he doesn't think much of it. And if ML has been making sexist remarks, well, to Eric, so are tons of men at the time. It's totally normal. But when Eric leaves the apartment in the late summer of 1989 to go backpacking in South America, he has no idea what those sexist comments and violence will lead to. By the end of August, ML applies for a firearm license and begins scoping out Polytechnic. It takes a couple months for his permit to arrive, and he is seen on campus numerous times while he waits. When it does arrive, he walks in to Checkmate Sports on November 21st, and purchases a semi-automatic rifle and five boxes of bullets for $765.03. The model of rifle he uses is popular with SWAT teams. During this time, on one rare occasion that he spent socializing with friends, the subject of suicide comes up. ML informs everybody that, quote, If I ever did commit suicide... I'd take as many people as I could with me. In the beginning of December, M.L. visits his mother to drop off an early birthday present. A very early birthday present, given that her birthday was after Christmas. Unusually for M.L., who did not enjoy being touched, he allowed his mother to give him a kiss. When he leaves, she has no idea it will be the last time she sees him alive. He spends those first few days of December crossing all of his T's. He drops off two garbage bags at his mother's condo while she's at work. They are filled with clothes, books, and his Betamax player. He leaves a strange scavenger hunt for another friend. Note, this friend goes masked and under cover of darkness to discover what M.L. left for him in his apartment. After following the clues... Turns out he left him some movies and music. Now, for the first time ever, M.L. is late paying his rent. He leaves a note asking people to give his fridge to the landlord as payment. Everything else he owns, he leaves to an old school friend. On December 5th, he rents a car. The next morning, he heads to a barber shop. He shaves off all of his hair. A few hours later, he heads to the École Polytechnique, paying $20 to the parking attendant at one of the school's parking lots. Heading up to the registrar's office, he seats himself in a chair, hat pulled low over his face, and clutching a large green garbage bag. At around 4.45, the kindly registrar asked him if she could help him at all. He says nothing but exits the room. A little after five, M.L. makes his way through twisting corridors before finally ending up outside the doors of the classroom C-230. 
In his previous reconnaissance, he chose this room for its location. It is alone at the end of a hallway, and two sets of steel doors must be passed through before entering the classroom itself. Yanking the garbage bag off, which reveals his rifle, he bangs open the door. The time is 5.10 p.m. A group of students are at the front of the classroom giving a presentation. Some look at M.L. as though he's walked in late. He smiles back at those students. Then he walks towards the presentation and yells, Everybody stop everything! He then goes on to demand that the women head to the left side of the room and the men the right. This is met with laughter. December 6th is the last day of classes. Most students believe this is a harmless prank. M.L. thinks that they are laughing at him and fires two shots into the ceiling. Now he has their attention. The women head to the left side of the room. Along the way, Helene Colgan sees the weapon and recognizes it. She tells the other women that this is serious. The men head towards the exit. M.L. yells out, You're all a bunch of feminists, and I hate feminists. Once they are fully separated, M.L. yells at the men to get out. They reluctantly do so. Once they leave, he turns back to the women and asks them if they know why they are there. He claims, again, it's because they're feminists. Nathalie Provost, who will go on to survive the attack, tells him that they aren't all feminists. They're there to study science. Instead of listening, M.L. unleashes a torrent of bullets on the nine women, aiming indiscriminately from left to right until all of them were collapsed on the floor. Screaming and moaning can be heard by the fleeing men. A few of the men quickly scramble out of the hallway to try and get help. Back inside the classroom, M.L. takes the time to write shit, shit on someone's work. M.L. heads back down the corridor, gun aimed at the men who stand pressed against one side of the hallway. When M.L. leaves, he heads down, following a main corridor. This leads him to the photocopy center, where he shoots and injures three more students. At the doorway of C-228, a female student is standing. He aims the rifle at her, only for it to malfunction. She sprints inside the classroom, locking it behind her. Now upset, M.L. heads into a stairwell to see what the problem is. As he is tinkering with the gun, a male student heading up to the photocopy center hears him say, Ah, shit, I'm out of bullets. The student doesn't think much about this until he sees the wounded people in the photocopy area. M.L. heads to the foyer. One student there is just stepping off the escalator. He shoots her, but she manages to make it to the emergency stairway and hides on the fifth floor. He moves along the cafeteria terrace to room B-218. This is the financial services office. Inside, having heard the gunshots, Marise Le Gagnard heads to the door to try and lock it. Except that in order to lock the door, she has to reach outside and check it. She reaches that handle just as M.L. is on the other side. A short struggle ensues, lasting about 20 seconds. Maurice wins. She locks the door and runs for safety. But the door to the financial services office has a window. M.L. aims through it, firing twice. The window shatters and the bullets hit Maurice, killing her instantly. At 5.18 p.m., he enters the cafeteria decorated with red and white balloons. Nearly 100 people are there, celebrating the end of the semester with free wine provided by the university. Having just finished paying for her food, Barbara Maria Kluznik Vidavich finds an empty table next to a column. A moment later, she is shot by M.L. 
and left curled over the chair. Her husband is still getting his food, but he is pushed into a mass of people now trying to escape. M.L. shoots another woman in the cafeteria, wounding her. He pushes on to a storage area known as the Polypartie. Inside, Geneviève Bergeron and Anne-Marie Edouard are hiding. He shoots, killing them both. Nearby the Polypartie, a male and female student are hiding under a table. M.L. spots them and then tells them to get out. It's unknown why he lets them escape. Calmly walking up an unmoving escalator, M.L. heads to the third floor. Three students are walking down the hallway. He shoots at all three, injuring them. Making his way to classroom B311, he once again slams open the door. Three students are giving a presentation. Marise Leclerc is scribbling on the blackboard proudly wearing a new red sweater she bought for the Christmas season. Get out! Get out! He screams into the room before shooting Maurice in the stomach. People begin to panic as he fires at the first row of chairs. Maud Javiernik and Michel Richard attempt to escape through the front door of the classroom. He kills both of them in the attempt. Many more students are able to make their way out through the back door. M.L. moves through the classroom, firing at students hiding under desks. He wounds three and kills Annie Turcotte, where she cowers. Then he empties his magazine by firing anywhere in the classroom he feels like. When he's out of bullets, he hears a faint calling for help. Maurice is moaning quietly, still alive from the gunshot wound to her abdomen. M.L. reaches into his army jacket and pulls out a six-inch hunting knife. Hovering over her body, he stabs her three times in the heart to silence her. Now confident that she's dead, M.L. removes his hat and places it on the professor's desk, along with the bloody knife and two boxes of ammunition. Then he takes a moment to wrap his coat around the barrel of the gun. For a final time, he mutters, Ah, shit, and shoots himself through the mouth. His rampage is over. The time is approximately 5.28 p.m. All told, the massacre takes less than 20 minutes. The aftermath will take hours. The initial call to emergency services comes in at 5.12 p.m. The caller describes themselves as a student at Polytechnic. The agent hears gunshots as well as a person moaning through the phone. This agent tries to send the information relayed to police dispatch. It's unsuccessful. Two more calls come in at 5.13 p.m. The second call is from Polytechnic's security guard, who is alerting emergency services to the problem. He gets transferred to Urgence Santé, which is Emergency Health Services, now known as 911, and there he is informed that ambulances are already on their way. As more calls come flooding in, things become more difficult from the agent's standpoint. They are trying to get to the dispatch center line, but are told to take more details and then call the dispatch back. Many of the callers were giving their location as École Polytechnique. The receiving agents are asking for more information. What is the exact address of the school? What are the cross streets? Finally, once someone does give the cross streets, ambulances are dispatched to the scene. Further confusing matters, the ambulances were only told that two women and two men were down and to wait for police to arrive before entering the building. Despite repeated calls in which gunshots are heard, Urgence Santé does not implement disaster protocol. The mobile command unit, which is helpful in situations like this, will not be dispatched until much later. The first police officers and EMS on scene are mistakenly directed to two other buildings before making it to Polytechnic. By happenstance, 
a regional director for the police, was at Polytechnic to pick up his son from an exam, who informed him about the gunshots. So at 5.20, he is the one that calls and informs officials where to go. Once the police finally do arrive, they set up a perimeter. But different police cars are on different radio channels, and so there's little communication between them, which leads to much confusion. The first ambulance arrives at 5.22 p.m. EMS are held behind the police barricade that's been established. The first ambulances call for backup, recognizing that the scene is worse than what they were led to believe. A call for more doctors is requested from Urgence Santé. Dispatch informs them that because it's past five, they're not sure they can get any more. At 5.26 p.m., a student sets off the fire alarm after confirming with emergency services that this will help other students get to safety. The second he does it, another unit demands the fire alarm be turned off. But this doesn't happen. Chaos continues. At 5.27, injured students are fleeing the building and seeking medical attention. One ambulance takes two students after checking in with dispatch that it's okay to do so. Another student still inside the building also calls Urgence Santé, giving them the first complete description of the shooter. 5.28 p.m. One EMS worker who had heard the call arrived on scene, despite having been told by dispatch there was no need for any additional people to attend. By 5.44 p.m., five students who have fled the building have been taken by ambulance for treatment. Police and EMS have not yet entered the building. EMS must wait until police have swept the building before they can go inside and help any injured. At 5.45 p.m., police enter. Soon after, they allow EMS to come in as well. And here's where things get even more twisted. The police, due to the broken information from dispatch, have only been informed about the shootings on the second and third floors. Thus, the EMS workers who are first allowed into Polytechnique bypass the cafeteria. So the victims inside the cafeteria will not be pronounced dead for another two hours. To make matters even worse, EMS are not given police escorts into the specific spaces of the shootings. The third floor group wanders around aimlessly until finally being escorted into B-311. Once there, a police officer informs the group that one student hiding under a desk, believed to be Annie Turcotte, had been breathing until EMS entered the room. Mixed messages continue for the next 15 minutes. The police are demanding that medical professionals stay out of the building as much as possible because they still have not identified ML and are worried about a second shooter. And inside, EMS and police are unable to relay messages to each other, nor can they get them from outside due to a lack of equipment. This will make matters worse in the coming hours. The first seriously injured person is removed from Polytechnic at 6.02 p.m., nearly an hour after the rampage began. Remember the mobile disaster unit? Well, that doesn't arrive until 6.34 p.m., well after it was sorely needed. Press and media also begin arriving. One journalist manages to make it into the school undetected. She witnesses some of the carnage in room B-311 and heads to a payphone to call her office. While she waits for the phone to dial, a police officer stumbles upon her and yells, Are you crazy? Don't you know they're killing women here? And runs off. It's worth noting that most of the reporters on scene that night were women. In the coming days, nearly all of the reporting on the massacre would come from men. One officer on scene was Pierre Leclerc, who was the police spokesman. He was aware that his daughter was at Polytechnique that evening, but he assured himself that the possibility of her being one of the victims was minute. Upon his arrival, he gives the gathered media a small statement and says he will go inside and report back. He finds his beloved daughter, Maurice, 
in B311, still wearing her new Christmas sweater. He is sent home, and he says nothing further to the media that night. Rapidly making their way to the scene are friends and family members of Polytechnic students. As uninjured but terrified students make their way outside from their hiding places, the crowd begins to thin, little by little. It thins even further as the names of those who have been taken to hospital are read out. Hours later, the only people left waiting are those who will be taken to the temporary morgue to identify the victims. Many family members and friends who were asked to do this report seeing the victims' faces as aged and filled with fear and pain. On the night of December 6th, the interim president of the Université de Montréal is a man named Louis Corville. The previous president, a man named Roland Doré, had resigned a few months previously to run for chairman of the board. Both he and the mayor of Montreal, Jean Doré, happened to be in Lyon for meetings that day regarding the twinning of the two cities. Corville will later be commended for his actions. In the aftermath, he personally walked frightened students down hallways, invited family members to walk where their loved ones had been gunned down. He invites injured and grieving families into his home to mourn and takes time to visit ML's mother, recognizing that she is a victim too. He enlists his family to go to hospitals to visit with recovering victims. His daughter, who happens to speak Mandarin, is actually sent to the hospital to act as a translator for one gravely injured student. By contrast, Roland Doré returns from France and chairs the crisis committee. Within three days, all traces of blood and gore are gone. And by the new semester, only a few weeks later, every area where ML's bullets had reached is now wiped clean and in some cases even painted clean. It's hard to see any trace of the massacre outside of the missing classmates. Even Natalie Provost, who had bravely stood up to ML, is back in class the following month. Trauma services were not provided although the school's guidance counselors had an overwhelming upsurge in people seeking services over the next few months. Many of those suffering were the men, particularly the men who had left the classroom when instructed by ML. One survivor, Asma Mansout, is resolute in explaining to people that the men did try to help. They returned to them as soon as they could. They are the ones that called urgence santé but many still felt survivor's guilt. In the summer of 1990, one student, Socrobli, completed suicide, noting in his note that he couldn't live with the guilt any longer. His parents, who were unable to face life without their only child, joined him soon afterwards. A veil of silence seemed to stretch across campus. Unless it was discussed with friends and colleagues in hushed whispers, People weren't mentioning what had happened, and the after-effects of that continue to be felt today. Many of the police officers and paramedics who attended the scene either took sick leave or early retirement after witnessing the massacre. The mortician quit the night after completing work on the bodies. He had been in his job for years, but this broke him. In the media, discussions about the massacre took noticeably different turns. It was originally reported, and even noted in speeches, that people were heartbroken over the loss of étudiants. For those of you who don't speak French, this pronunciation means that they are referring to only male students. Though four men were injured by ML's bullets, it was clear that he was only targeting women. Those female reporters who had been on the grounds of Polytechnic said the same thing, but their testimony was dismissed by the men back in their offices. It takes until the next day, long after the news has broken, for the public to become aware that all of the dead are women. 
and it takes even longer for outlets to acknowledge that this was a hate crime against women. Some still continue to deny this today. Many will turn to talk about ML's mental health issues, that this was him acting alone as a sick man. But in doing so, they deny that anti-feminist rhetoric continues until today. One only has to look at the horrific treatment of Hillary Clinton during her presidential bid by Donald Trump to know that misogynistic comments are alive and well in this day and age. What makes it even more incomprehensible that people don't consider this to be an anti-woman crime is ML's suicide note. I think it's important in detailing his views, so I'm going to read it. Forgive the mistakes. I had 15 minutes to write this. See also the annex. Would you note that if I commit suicide today, the 6th of December, 1989, it is not for economic reasons, for I have waited until I exhausted all my financial means, even refusing jobs, but for political reasons, because I have decided to send the feminists who have always ruined my life to their maker. For seven years, life has brought me no joy, and being totally blasé, I have decided to put an end to those viragos. I tried in my youth to enter the forces as an officer cadet, which would have allowed me possibly to get into the arsenal and proceed l'ortie in a raid. They refused me because I'm antisocial. I therefore had to wait until this day to execute my plans. In between, I continued my studies in a haphazard way, for they never really interest me, knowing in advance my fate, which did not prevent me from obtaining very good marks despite my theory of not handing in work and the lack of studying before exams. Even if the mad killer epithet will be attributed to me by the media, I consider myself a rational erudite that only the arrival of the Grim Reaper has forced to take extreme acts. For why persevere to exist if it is only to please the government, being rather backward-looking by nature, except for science? The feminists have always enraged me. They want to keep the advantages of women. For example, cheaper insurance, extended maternity leave preceded by a preventative leave, etc., while seizing for themselves those of men. Thus, it is an obvious truth that if the Olympic Games removed the men-women distinction, there would be women only in the graceful events. So the feminists are not fighting to remove that barrier. They are so opportunistic, they neglect to profit from the knowledge accumulated by men through the ages. They always try to misrepresent them every time they can. Thus, the other day, I heard they were honoring the Canadian men and women who fought at the front line during the World Wars. How can you explain women were not authorized to go to the front line? Will we hear of Caesar's female legions and female galley slaves who, of course, took up 50% of the ranks of history, though they never existed? Arir Cassius Belli. Sorry for this too brief letter. M.L. The Annex lists the names of 19 women as well as their telephone numbers whom he identified as feminists. Nearly died today. The lack of time, because I started too late, has allowed these radical feminists to survive. Aleya Yakta Est. Thus the die is cast. I don't know how anyone can read that letter and not see this as a crime against women. Part of what makes this disaster so heartbreaking to me is that although some things were improved after the massacre, notably gun control, as well as emergency dispatch protocols in Quebec, what has not improved is violence against women. Recent statistics indicate that one woman is killed in Canada every 48 hours. 30% of women in Canada aged 16 and over report having been sexually assaulted. And that statistic is the women who report. The likely number is closer to 51 or 52. Half of the female population. That number doubles for women with disabilities. And it triples for women of any visible minority.
44% of women in Canada self-report having been the victim of some kind of abuse in an intimate relationship. And sexual assault in Canada is the only major violent crime that continues to increase year by year. Every other one, assault, murder, is decreasing. Despite Canada ranking number three globally in terms of quality of life, Canada ranks at number 30 for gender disparity. And all of this is to say nothing of the continued tragedies inflicted against Indigenous women. There are multiple disasters in this regard that will be covered in later episodes. But despite all this darkness, some good things come out as well. After the tragedy, female attendance at École Polytechnique rose. It continues to be amongst the highest in the country, and decidedly the highest in Quebec. I want to end this episode talking a little bit about each of the victims. They were all vibrant, loving women who were there to learn and study science. And whatever ML may have believed, none of them took his spot away from him. Here they are in alphabetical order. Geneviève Bergeron, age 21, second-year student in civil engineering. Friends described her as a star. She loved to sing and play the clarinet. She was such a talented musician, in fact, she was having trouble deciding whether she should pursue music or engineering. Her reasoning for going to École Polytechnique? Quote, I'll always be able to play music, so I should go into engineering. It's a more secure field. End quote. She thrived at Polytechnique, always getting top marks, but making sure to spend time with her sister watching basketball games, a shared passion of theirs. Her mother was a powerhouse, a city councillor named Therese Daviot. She was a pioneer for women in the political field in Quebec. Jean Doré, the mayor at the time of the massacre, actually wept in a press conference because he was so devastated by the loss of Geneviève. He knew her well from seeing her with his colleague. Hélène Colgan, age 23, senior in mechanical engineering. She was noted by friends and family for her deep devotion to her studies. Her devotion was in part because she was determined to help the world by becoming an engineer. She was top of the class and beloved as a teammate. One student described her as, quote, not a leader, not a follower either, just someone who took her place in a group and was liked by everyone. As a reward for four years of heart studying, Helen had tickets for a two-week vacation booked in Cancun with her friend Natalie Crocteau, among others. They were to leave on December 29th, and she was looking forward to finally relaxing. Natalie Crocteau, aged 23, senior in mechanical engineering. She had a great love of learning. In her teenage years, she'd been an air cadet as well as on the planning committee for her high school graduation. She was popular in spite of her nerdy love of science. A friend described her as, quote, a good listener, a warm heart, and someone who is always ready to help. She was looking forward to her trip with Helene as it would be the first time she'd gone on vacation without her family. Her name is later given to the community center of the city where she was born, Barbara Dagneau, age 22, senior in mechanical engineering, held a teaching assistant position. Barbara comes to engineering honestly. Her father, Pierre Alain, was a professor of mechanical engineering at the École de Technologie de Montréal. Before she even finishes her own degree, Barbara is helping to assist her father in his mechanical engineering labs. Her mother was a huge advocate for women, so she feels proud of her place at Polytechnic. 
When Barbara was not engineering or studying, she played the piano, violin, and double bass. She was also taking private singing lessons. On the day of her death, she had left the apartment she shared with her brother Jean-Christophe in a bit of a huff. He'd eaten her leftovers, and she was still a little miffed at him about that. Her father maintains that his heart stopped beating the day hers did. Anne-Marie Edouard, age 21, first-year student in chemical engineering. To be around Anne-Marie was to see someone who never stopped. Only three days before she died, Anne-Marie was happily skiing in the Laurentides. She'd been so pleased to make the ski team that year. If she wasn't skiing, it was likely to find her kayaking or horseback riding or sailing or some sort of activity. In spite of this, her brother remembers her as, quote, a peaceful soul. She radiated a profound serenity conductive to introspection. Anne-Marie found time in her busy schedule to help disabled youth at a couple of community centers. Her brother Jim was her partner in crime. They loved each other dearly. She got interested in chemical engineering after interning at her father's company, Monsanto Canada. After her death, Monsanto works with her father to create a scholarship in her honor. Students are awarded it based on a balance of social skills, academic honors, and community engagement. At her funeral, it was said, quote, Anne-Marie saw life as privileged. She gave her love to everyone, and her friendship was unconditional. Dedicate your first exams to her. And above all, don't care about your grades, since they were absolutely not important to her. Maud Haviernik, age 29, second-year student in engineering materials. Maud was already a graduate with an environmental design degree. She comes to engineering in a roundabout way. She trained first as an artist and sculptor, but from there she discovered a love of interior design, particularly of communal spaces. She meets her husband, Serge, during her environmental design degree. During her tenure at Université de Québec à Montréal, she even designs the student café in the design department. Once she enters the job market, though, she realizes she can't raise as high as she wants in the pay scale without an engineering degree. So she decides she'll do it. Of course, this means having to take classes in science, because she'd never particularly been interested in it before. But she throws herself into it wholeheartedly. Her sister is training to be a biologist and Maud asks her for help quite frequently. Maud waitresses at restaurants to help pay for school and finds exam time super stressful. So, whenever they would hit, she would leave Serge and decamp to her mother's house so that she could be well taken care of as she prepared for her exams. After her death, Université de Québec à Montréal donates a scholarship in her name to one female undergraduate in environmental design who pursues a master's degree. Barbara Maria Kluznik-Videvich, aged 31, second-year nursing student. Barbara already has an engineering degree from the university in her hometown of Wrocław, Poland. The switch to nursing is to be able to move and find a job with her husband Witold, who was studying medicine. She met him when they were 16, and they'd been inseparable ever since. After her engineering degree, Barbara goes on to pursue education to help children. In her spare time, she loved jazz and painting. Politically, she was very involved. She and Witold belonged to the Solidarosk, which was a group to help end communism. They sent out secret flyers. In 1976, they had come to Montreal for the Olympics and to visit Vittold's family. In 1987, his aunt sponsors them to come to Canada. 
They both attend Université de Montréal and are happy with their new lives in Canada. Within Barbara Maria's first semester, she's awarded a bursary normally earmarked for second-year students because of how high her grades are. One faculty member actually described her as, quote, the pride of our faculty. Back in Poland, she had a beloved godson that she was delighted to send gifts to. She and Witold were often too busy to cook, and so they frequented the cafeterias. Their favorite cafeteria was Polytechnic, which is why she was there that evening. Université de Montréal paid to ship her remains back to Poland, and the nursing department gives a scholarship in her name every year. Maris Lagagnère, aged 25, works in the financial services department. Maris was the youngest of 13 children. She got her cégep in computer services and first began working at the Université de Montréal in the scientific research services. Later, she's moved to the financial services, which is where she meets the love of her life, her husband, Jeff. Jeff had been stuck in Florida with bad weather at the end of one semester and was unable to pay his tuition on time. Upon returning to Montréal, he headed to the financial services department, where he told his sob story to Maris. He kept getting tongue-tied because he thought she was so pretty. Maris looked forward to his visits at the office, which grew more frequent as he tried to woo her. It didn't take long. One date and they were already serious. By 1987, they were living together, even though they weren't married. This was deeply unusual in Quebec society at the time. They married two years later, in August of 1989, before heading off on a honeymoon to Mexico. Jeff describes her as having, quote, a face that would glow from the emotion she was feeling. Still deep in the newlywed phase in December, she and Jeff were trying for a baby. According to her calendar, on December 6th, her period was five days late. Jeff remains convinced she was pregnant. Maris Leclerc, aged 23, fourth-year student in engineering materials. Maris's friends and family describe her as having a strong personality. Although she likes to assert control over her younger siblings, despite having a police officer for a father, she resists authority. When her parents put her in a strict Catholic school, after a year she put together well-reasoned arguments as to why she should go to a more progressive school, so they let her. She's a dedicated Girl Scout, making it to the rank of Ranger. At one point, she even tries Canadian military training, she injures herself and leaves early, claiming it is too rigid for her. At Polytechnique, she meets a man named Benoit. They get along famously, and he remembers her as always being down for anything. He fondly remembers her car, which was covered in graffiti that her friends had decided to paint on it during a party one evening. On December 6th, Benoit had actually been planning to attend Maurice's presentation, but he was running late, and the classroom had been moved, so he missed it. Benoit continues to instill Maurice's spirit in his own daughters by often reminding them not to care what other people think. Anne-Marie Lemay, age 27, fourth year in mechanical engineering. As a teenager, one of Anne-Marie's friends briefly lost the use of his legs. Anne-Marie was fascinated to watch him go through the exercises to get his movement back. She recognizes it is engineers who built the devices that help people. She decides then that she'll either go into medicine or engineering, so she can help people too. When it comes time for university, her grades are too low for medicine, so it's engineering she turns to. She loves working as part of a team, so engineering ends up being a great fit. She even volunteers to be the graduation photography coordinator. So not only does she book everybody's appointments, but on the picture days themselves, she's there to straighten out a hair or encourage a smile. 
Her other passion was singing. She would often return home to sing in her choir, and many of her friends were dedicated singers as well. One summer, she became the first woman to work at her location of Speedy Muffler in Saint-Hubert. From a young age, she was fascinated by death. At the age of six, she asked her father, quote, who's going to kill me? Later on, she capsizes a boat and briefly lost consciousness. She comes out of that experience serene and not afraid of death. In the early morning of December 6th, she writes in her diary, quote, Today is the last day of class and the last day of my life. Wow, that sounds really depressing at three in the morning. Her choir will end up singing at her funeral. They include one of her favorites in her honor, Gabrielle Faure's Cantique de Jean Racine. Sonia Pelletier, 28, due to graduate the following day from mechanical engineering. Sonia was the youngest of eight children from a family living in the Gaspé region, and she loved it. She was very smart, earning grades at the top of her class. A friend remembers her as, quote, a rather exceptional person, a memorable person, the kind you don't meet often in life. In her downtime, her passions were sketching, sewing, and cooking. One evening during her studies at Polytechnic, she taught her roommate how to make homemade pasta. She even gets an excellence award from École Polytechnique for her studies. Once she graduates on December 7th, she's already got a job lined up. She could afford to coast the last few days of school, but she chooses not to. On December 6th, a friend tried to convince Sonia to ditch class and come drink with her to celebrate the end of the semester. But Sonia insists she heads to the class, saying it wasn't fair for others to sit through her presentation if she wasn't going to sit through theirs. A park in her hometown of Saint-Ulrich is named in her honor. Michel Richard, aged 21, known to family and friends as Mimi, a second-year student in engineering materials. Mimi was a vibrant light to her family and friends. When she would go home to Megantic, quote, we were all under her spell. In her teenage years, she forms a home for children, in between being a cadet and playing the trumpet, flute, and piano. Mimi was stylish and was always well put together. When she and her friends graduated high school, she kept in touch with many of them by writing weekly letters. In the summer of 1989, she ended up going on a fishing trip with her boyfriend. When her friends saw the picture of her dressed down in a sweatshirt and socks, holding a fishing rod, they knew it had to be love. Mimi had a special bond with her mother, Thérèse. Her father had abandoned the family early in Mimi's life, but they had recently reconciled. Mimi was planning to spend Christmas with him. Thérèse would later go on to say that as soon as she heard the news on the radio about the shooting, she knew her beloved Mimi was gone. Annie Saint-Arnaud, age 23, mechanical engineering student. Annie was someone who really wanted to help people. At the time of her death, she was trying to choose between accepting a job at Alcan Smelter in Saguenay, Quebec, or heading to Africa to be with her brother and help work on community projects. She was a devoted friend, particularly to her close friend since childhood, Sonia. Sonia describes a woman who was always a little off the beaten path. During one grade school project where children had to choose a research topic, Annie decided to do hers on the horizon, a far cry from everybody else's pet cat or dog. She played the flute and loved to do theater, even joining the drama club at UDM. But her other great passion was poetry writing. After her death, her brother published a book of her poetry. A library is named in her honor in her hometown. Annie Turcotte, age 21, first-year student in engineering materials. 
friends and family remember Annie as a fun-loving woman who was deeply concerned about the environment. Her love for the environment is what pushed her into engineering. Another great passion of Annie's was swimming. She competed in lots of swim meets with her city's club and gave free swimming lessons to children staying in her family's motel. In the summers, she gives yet more lessons at a camp for disabled youth. Because she doesn't drink, she's always the designated driver, making sure friends got home safely. She loved Christmas and Christmas ornaments. On December 6th, she was hard at work choosing her classes for the following semester. Years after her death, a note she'd written was found in her bedroom in her childhood home. It read, I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of the pain that surrounds it. I hope to die in some kind of accident, in the middle of the action. At her funeral, her casket was covered in Christmas ornaments. These 14 women had beautiful, fulfilling lives snuffed out. May we all be cognizant of how to prevent future senseless deaths. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this has been Canadian Disasters, True North Strong and Destructive. <laughs>